Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the great gift of being the church and the gift of studying scripture and community. We ask your blessing upon our conversation and that as we study the power of the early church, that same power would find its way into our hearts and that we would be a pleasing manifestation of the body of Christ in our day and time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Peter's sermon and the power of the Spirit. And I'll start by reading Acts 2 verses 14 through 24. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, even in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, listen to what I say. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. But God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So I'm going to go ahead and stop there and add a little bit of commentary. And... Then we'll see what questions everyone has. So we start with Peter, and he is with the 11, and we remember that the Pentecost has just happened. And he is addressing the men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem. And so I think it's important to know that Peter's sermon is addressed first to the house of Israel, that he's not yet preaching to the Gentiles. And Jesus and Paul even said the same. Jesus was quoted as saying once, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then later, Jesus' ministry expands to the Gentiles. And so Peter's focus at first is addressing the Israelites in order to unpack what happened. And in order to explain this Pentecost event, he goes to the prophet Joel because Remember, one of Peter's concerns, I'm sorry, one of Luke's concerns is to help the audience understand, both Christian and non-Christian, that these events that are unfolding are the continuation of God's promise to the people of Israel, that this is the way that God is fulfilling God's promise to Abraham, that story that began with Genesis chapter 12. And so by quoting the prophet Joel and saying this event fulfills that prophecy, this is Luke's way of saying this is not a new story, but actually a new manifestation of a very old story 
that has taken somewhat of a twist with the Messiah who came not to conquer, but rather to die on a cross and to be raised from the dead, thus defeating death forever. And the thing that Peter focuses on with the prophet Joel is how in the last days, God will pour out God's spirit upon all flesh. And this idea of all flesh is significant because the Holy Spirit is not a new character. We recall that in the Old Testament, the spirit would fall upon people from time to time, upon King David, upon Moses. There's even a great story in Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, when the Lord comes down in a cloud and takes that power of the spirit and puts it on the 70 elders. And for a moment, the spirit falls upon 70 people, which is a lot of people in the Old Testament. But there was always this prophecy that the spirit would one day be given to all. And so Peter takes this prophecy. Peter takes this understanding that one day the spirit would be given to all. And he looks at what happens at Pentecost and he basically says, the time has come. The time for this promise is now and the spirit is now available to everyone. Verse 18, even upon my slaves, both men and women. So all are welcome in this restored Israel. The spirit is not for a select few. It's not for Moses, not for David, not for only the 70 elders, but rather upon men, women, slaves, and free. Everyone now has access to the spirit, and that's going to be a big part of what God is now doing. Now, there is a tension that we're going to find in the Acts of the Apostles that's present here in this reading. And that tension can be summarized as saying that on the one hand, what's happening is a continuation of God's promise to Israel. The promise was to Israel. And that's why at the very beginning, Peter addresses the men of Judea, right? So on the one hand, this is a continuation of God's promise to Israel, and yet that promise is now being extended to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so you kind of have this tension where the covenant, the ancient covenant moves forward, but it moves forward in a way that no one could have expected. And so again, in verse 22, Peter is addressing the Israelites. You that are Israelites, listen to what I have to say. Peter understands himself as preaching first to the people of Israel, that the promise is to them first, and they must be the first ones to hear the gospel. And what does he say? He says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs. And remember, Jesus's crucifixion, this is only, you know, 50 days ago. So people remember Jesus. Jesus is not forgotten. Um, Verse 23, this man handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And so what Peter is saying here is that the cross, the resurrection, it wasn't an oops, wasn't an accident. It's not like this thing that God didn't see coming and now we have to improvise, but rather this happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. This was the way that God was going to fulfill God's promise to Abraham all along. But then it gets personal. Notice what it says in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. You that are Israelites, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. So there's this very personal aspect to it. And a little bit later on, whenever Peter and John get arrested, which we'll look at next week, you kind of sense that part of what's happening is that not only are they stirring up a lot of excitement and a lot of energy around what they're preaching, that Jesus is the Messiah, but, you know, like Peter is also getting kind of personal that you had a role in this, you people who are listening, and he's going to ask them to repent. But then in verse 24, this is the preaching of the gospel. God raised him up, having freed him from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. If you're ever looking for a summary statement of what the gospel is, this is at least how Peter would put it in his preaching. What is the good news? Peter would say, God raised up Jesus, having freed Jesus from death, because it was impossible for him to be held in death's power. And so a lot of times, whenever we talk about the meaning of the cross, we talk about how Jesus has overcome sin, and that's really great. It's important to know that our sins are forgiven, but notice in Peter's preaching, his emphasis is that death has been conquered, that the main enemy here is death, and that death then will not become something that we have to fear, but something that Jesus has overcome. You know, I think of George Herbert, who once said that which used to be an executioner is now a gardener, because death is something that plants us deeper into God's love. And um, this is going to be part of the perspective of the book of Acts, that Jesus has overcome not just sin, but death, and that the covenant is for all people and extends beyond our bodily life. And so I'm just going to stop there uh, and see what you're thinking about and where this resonates and what questions you have. About Peter's status as a scholar, was he trained as a you know as a preacher? I mean, I, I don't really know that much about him. Yeah, so that is a great, great question, Martha. And one of the things we'll discover next week in the reading, if you want to read ahead, is. Uh, after Peter is arrested, um, Luke makes a point to have the officials observe that Luke and John are ordinary men. Think of what the exact opposite is of a scholar, and that's Peter. Peter and James and John, uh, so many of the first apostles, were very humble, ordinary, and uneducated fishermen. And that's a testament, I think, to the sort of people that Jesus surrounded himself with. He didn't kind of come for the best and the brightest, so to speak, those with PhDs and lots of academic credibility who had studied the <laughs> law backwards and forwards, but rather he really came for people, you know, blue collar workers, uh, people without an education. Um, and uh, that's who Peter was. He, you know, he had a simple life as a fisherman and Jesus called him. And if you look at Peter's life before the crucifixion and resurrection, Peter comes off as a little bit lacking in intelligence at times. You know, he contradicts Jesus whenever Jesus says he has to go to the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he takes a sword and tries to chop off someone's ear. On the toughest night of Jesus' life, Peter denies Jesus three consecutive times. And so here he is, you know, 50 days later, preaching this fiery, articulate sermon on the prophet Joel, which begs the question, what on earth happened to Peter? This is not the Peter we know in the Gospel of Luke or any other gospel for that matter. 
And part of the answer to that question, Martha, is what happened to Peter? The Holy Spirit. And so part of what's being revealed here is the power, not of Peter, but of this new spirit that inhabits him and speaks through him. Thank you. I had, um, so did the Israelites um, not accept Jesus as the Messiah because he was, you know, his message was for everyone? Um, or was there something else that um, led them to say, no, this you know, can't be an extension of our story? That's a really good and complicated question. <laughs> no, good and complicated questions are what we do. Okay. And I think it's really important to name that in answering this question, we have to really focus in on the religious leadership of Jerusalem in 29 AD when this happened and not make a blanket statement about the people of Israel as a whole or Jews in general, right? Because that could mm -hmm. lead to some very complicated and okay. uh, difficult things. But in terms of the historical setting and those to whom Peter is preaching, I think it's important to remember really two things. Historically speaking, no one expected the Messiah to die on a cross and then be raised from the dead. In fact, in Deuteronomy, it's pretty clear, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, that the idea, if you were hanging on a cross, this clearly meant that you were cursed by God. That was the prevailing understanding. And like all of us, the Jews in first century Palestine, 29 AD, their assumptions, their biases, their prejudices, their thoughts of how God was going to fulfill the covenant impacted what they could or could not see. And that's why Jesus often said, let anyone with ears to hear, hear, you know, that, that this is something different. And so um, how Jesus fulfilled the covenant by dying a really shameful and excruciating death, this is just not what um, people expected. It's just not what people expected. And I think the other thing, kind of the more tricky thing in the gospel of Luke is that, and this, this wouldn't apply to the people of Israel, but to anyone in power, right? Whether you're a Christian, an Israelite or something else, is that the people really, really love their power. You know, Jesus said, woe to you Pharisees. You love being greeted in the marketplace and being called rabbi, rabbi, and having the seats of honor at banquets, right? And what Jesus did was threaten that. And so it kind of goes back to Martha's observation about Peter. Jesus called an uneducated fisherman and said, you're an apostle. Well, back in the day, if you really wanted to have credibility as a Jewish teacher, the training was rigorous. You know, Jesus basically said, anyone gets a PhD, come follow me. And they didn't like that. So part of what Jesus was doing was yeah. essentially a threat to their power as well. So it's a complicated question, but... Um, it's easy for us to look back and say, well, of course they should have known. The scripture was pointing to this all along, but in real time, you know, from their perspective, it was a lot more complicated and things happened a lot more quickly. Someone with a PhD who worked really, really, really hard to get it. I, uh, being retired now, I, I honestly don't know why I did it. You know, I mean, I've had a real sense of 
as Richard Rohr says, you know, you get a second life and don't beat yourself up about the first one. But I, I have to reflect on that. And I can almost see why my parents were not so supportive mm. of all of that work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do want to, I do want to be clear, you know, Jesus doesn't have any problem with PhDs, you know, and I think that you should feel proud of yourself, Martha, for getting one. Uh, it's not, you know, here's the thing, and this is, you know, using a PhD as a metaphor. It's not that PhDs aren't wonderful. It's not that they're not something to be proud of. It's not that we shouldn't actually have some sort of doctorate or way of demarcating who has intensely studied and mastered a field of knowledge. It's only that we shouldn't then attach that to people and say that they're thus more worthy of God's love and that God is able to use them more than people like Peter to make a love spreading difference, right? So um, it's not that a PhD is inherently bad. A PhD is good. I wish I had a PhD. I'd love a PhD. It's only the, our <laughs> tendency, right, to cling to that in order to make ourselves feel special and to put us over and above someone else. That's the problem that was operating in Jesus's day with the Pharisees. They had their training, their knowledge of the law. And rather than saying, this is a gift, this is a gift that God has given me to bless other people, they kind of use it as a power tool in order to lord themselves over other people. And that's the thing that Jesus critiqued. Um, is this the source of the, the, the use of, of death against Jews? Is this the statement that people attest? I mean, is that part of the World War II story? Is that, I mean, the Jews have been highly persecuted on the basis of this account. You guys hung him. Yes. Is this yeah. That? So Martha, that's a, a really, really good question. The question I'm hearing is, is, is this really the verse or the set of verses that uh, has been used to justify anti-Semitic behavior? And the truth is, right, we all know this, we can cherry pick things in scripture to justify our worst impulses. I mean, you can tell me, you, you tell me any offensive thing and I'll say, okay, give me a few minutes, and then I'll go weave together a little biblical narrative to justify that offensive thing. And that's called eisegesis. Eisegesis is when you take little nuggets of scripture and you remove them from context, and then you use them as fuel for your argument, as opposed to exegesis, which is when you take everything together as a whole, you have the context and you try to unpack the a meaning and the author's intent and everything happening and then apply it. Um, and so when it comes to eisegesis, there are many passages, mainly in the Gospel of John, that can be taken out of context in order to fuel an anti-Semitic worldview. Now, I want to be really, really clear, that is an unfaithful application of Scripture. And in the Gospel of John and even in Acts, we have to remember, we have to remember this is an inner family fight, right? This is an inner family fight that Peter understood himself as Jewish. So whenever he said men of Judea, he's not like a Gentile talking to someone he thinks is Jewish. 
they're all Jewish, right? This is an inner family fight. And he's trying to wrestle with what it means for God to fulfill God's promise to Abraham and the people of Israel. And so, uh, you know, if, if, uh, you know, if you're looking for some texts on interfaith dialogue, today's reading from Acts is probably not the one to choose. There are many passages from the Gospel of John that you don't want to choose where Jesus speaks harshly against the Jews. But what we have to remember is that in that context, they were all Jewish and that this was an inner family fight. So the answer, Martha, is yes, but I want to basically say that's an unfaithful reading of Scripture and that, again, you know, we can use Scripture to justify any um, um, horrible, horrible position. But that's not the intent of the text. Yeah, where it says the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Yeah, and... You know, I think what I'm trying, what I'm wrestling with is that, um, you know, the whole issue, the juxtaposition of foreknowledge of God versus free will. Yeah. Which he gave us in, it gave everybody in the Garden mm -hmm. of Eden. It's like, yeah. you got a choice. And um, <clears throat> unless he knows us so well, um, yeah. <laughs> that he says, oh, I know they're going to do it. And, um, mm -hmm. Um, if, I was wondering if you could solve the problem of free will and evil and God's yeah. will and our will. Well, yeah. I, I, so I, I, I can't, but I can say a few things. So the question as I hear it is basically how can things happen according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and that not be determinism when we're just rob robots and don't have choices. And the sub question is on top of that, you know, like, how can not just the cross, but horrible, evil things happen with God's foreknowledge, right? I mean, the Holocaust, this is horrible, right? Yeah. And, and the traditional view, this is called theodicy. It's a question of how do we justify the existence of a good, almighty, powerful God when bad things happen? Um, and that's a really, really tough question. So let me say two things, and then we'll see what your response is and whether or not this is convincing, okay? Um, and I can't, I'm just going to kind of throw them out there. With respect to God's will and our will, there is a term in theology called uh, con combat com compatibilism, compatibilism, which basically says that God's will and our will are not mutually exclusive, but they are compatible with each other, that it is possible for God to have a will and to not be removed, not just to kind of be an observer up in the heavens, uh, but to actually have a will and to be able to have a say in the affairs of human history without in any case negating the freedom of our will. Now, that's a very complicated thing to understand, but that would be the traditional theological understanding that I don't know of any theologians who get close to determinism, except maybe some like hyper-Calvinists. So most theologians throughout history, especially St. Augustine, who had a very strong doctrine of grace and providence, upheld the centrality of human will. And then that, that, that brings itself to the question of theodicy. How do bad, bad things happen? 
And let me offer you a, a metaphor and you can tell me whether or not this is pleasing to you. So I want you to imagine a world where no bad things happen. And in this world, there's really just like three things. There's a beautiful forest, a lovely pond, and butterflies. And it's beautiful. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful. The pond is beautiful. The forest is beautiful. The weather's nice. The butterflies are happy. They live, they die, but there's no pain. You know, it's just a lovely, lovely butterfly world. There's no evil, but notice what's also not in butterfly world. Think about what you value in life. There's no justice. There's no courage. There's no love in the, tra in the traditional sense in terms of how we understand it. There's no creativity. There's no meaningful accomplishment, right? So in butterfly world, all is good. There's no suffering, but it's also a pretty simple world. And the traditional understanding would be that to get this world where these higher moral goods exist, where it's actually possible for me to be courageous, where it's possible for me to love, where it's possible for me to create, that there actually has to be a world with human beings who have a will and who have a capacity to make choices. And the traditional understanding would be that God knows this and that this is the world we have and that in God's foreknowledge, things were gonna go bad and that God's intent is to one day restore the whole creation in a way that is so marvelous and so beautiful that the whole thing was worth it. That God would rather have this world where you and I have a freedom of will, where we can love, relate, find meaning, create, even if bad things happen, because God has a plan in the fullness of time to restore it to an even more beautiful state, to make it all worth it. And that's why God didn't just create butterfly world where there's no you know, human beings with a will. And so that's been the traditional understanding that in order to have these higher moral goods, you have to have human beings who have the capacity to make choices. And that hope is that one day God sorts this out in a way that's beautiful. Now, you can tell me whether or not you find those arguments convincing. Uh, those arguments are something to be wrestled with. I think parts of it resonate with me. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think especially the idea that God's will and our will often overlap. I mean, to me, where that takes place is in prayer and when I listen mm -hmm. and, um, and it's like, oh, okay. Um, and so that, that does make sense to me. The, the longer term view, um, it's um, attractive to me. Um, it's like, golly, you know, I sure hope that's the case because um, <clears throat> there's enough that's out of whack right now. Um, and so I hope we're moving in, in a good direction um, to resolve some of these things. And that's his intent. So, you know, I guess I'm, I think I'm happy with, with that, um, that answer. Well, and this is why it's called faith. What does Peter say in his sermon? Um, uh, but it's about Jesus overcoming death. Mm -hmm. So much of the Christian faith, one way or another, no matter how you understand that, is that mm -hmm. something we have to wrestle with? If, if, if our faith speaks nothing more than to the imminence of our human embodied experience from the moment we're born to the moment we die, 
mm-hmm. we're going to run into some troubles, that there has to be some transcendent, eternal, death-defeating aspect of our faith in order to wrestle with the fullness and ugliness of evil and injustice. Um, I, I guess it kind of helps me to think about our relationship with God somewhat as I do with my kids. You know, you teach your kids the things that you want them to have um, to make their own decisions and go their own way. Um, And at a certain point, you have to let them go. You know, if you are always there to fix every single problem for them, they aren't going to learn how to take care of themselves. That, you know, part of how we become the people that we are, are through our failures as much as our um, successes. And, um, and so, you know, that's kind of how I think of my relationship with God is that he's given me certain, certain talents and certain um, structure. Um, And yet, you know, because he does love me and he, he wants to, you know, let me kind of live into that, that, that life that that he he hopes i will i will choose and i will walk with him i mean i think that's what we do with our kids and sometimes it's very hard to see them fail and to see them struggle um but we know that that is the way that people learn i mean that's how we learn to walk yeah that's how we learn to talk i mean every little step that we take is a learning process yeah and it only works if you learn from your mistakes to some degree. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's beautiful, Julie. And, and a few things that really stand out. One is just God's fatherly, motherly, parent-like care for God's children. And I love you. I can't do it all for you. I'm here with you. I'm in you. I'm cheering you on. I'm going to take care of all the mistakes. But there's a sense in which what we're really talking about is why did God create human beings, <laughs> you know, human beings with a will, human beings who are not angels, who are embodied. Um, and, uh, and that's a particular experience. And, and so part of how God relates to us is I'm walking with you and I'm, I'm for you, but you are my children and the biblical metaphor of growing up. I mean, a lot of what scripture says mirrors the very language you use, Julie. The other thing I want to say about that line, the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, so often we hear that and our mind goes to a puppeteer pulling strings of a puppet. And that's not the intent of that verse or of the idea of God's providence. The point is really to emphasize God's omnipotence, God's power, God's, I've got this covered. And the pastoral impact is not, hey, anything happening to you was programmed by the master computer programmer a long time ago, and it's just playing out in your life. It's not determinism, but rather anything happening in your life, good, bad, ugly, scary, or fun, God has known about this before you did, 
in God is with you, and there is no surprise to God. The cross was not a surprise that God had to react to. The difficult thing happening in your life, you know, the difficult diagnosis, the phone call you didn't want to get, this is not a surprise to God. And that's meant to be heard from a place of comfort, of God knows, God's got it covered. God's powerful. God's omnipotent. That's really the impact, I think, of what Peter is trying to say and what Luke is trying to say through Peter. And as it pertains back to the Acts of the Apostles, think about their trauma. Their trauma is, is God really keeping his promise to Abraham? Because you have all these Gentiles coming in, and that's not supposed to happen. Uh, Is this really the way that God is fulfilling the covenant? And again, part of what Peter is saying is that, yes, all part of the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. None of this was a surprise. God is with us in all of this. And I know that it's messy, but God is not scratching his head wondering what to do next. And the pastoral message, I think, that Luke would have us take away with the difficulty in our life is the same. God is not scratching his head wondering what to do next. You might feel confusion but God is not confused. And I think that's really the pastoral message that is behind Peter's words. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. All came upon everyone because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and they ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So this is just a little snippet of the early church as this cohesive, lovely, lovely community. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And this language is now reflected in our baptismal covenant. And so if you recall the baptismal covenant in the Book of Common Prayer, the reason that line is included is because we as Christians in 21st century America are asked to devote ourselves to the same things the first Christians did, the apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. The idea of awe coming upon everyone is a unique Lucan theme. He's trying to set the stage where everyone is pulsating with this energy, wondering what's going to happen next, and awe as lots of signs and wonders are being done. And in verse 44, we're told that everyone is sharing their things in common, that people are selling their possessions and getting rid of their houses. and distributing the needs uh, to all the others in the church. And I think it's important to kind of name that this is really what all the apostles did when they left to follow Jesus. They basically sold all their possessions or they left their house to follow Jesus. And so part of what's happening here as Luke portrays it is that now more people are doing what the first apostles did Verse 46, um, they're spending time in the temple. I think that's important to reiterate the point that they still see themselves as Jewish. 
And whenever Acts was written, the temple had been destroyed. And the main gathering place for Jews during this time was the local synagogue. But the setting of this is the year 29 AD, you know, plus or minus a couple years. And because they are still Jewish, they are gathering in the temple, at least the Jewish Christians are. Uh, and they're breaking bread at home that has uh, overtones of the Eucharist. So they're breaking bread at home and they're eating their food with glad and generous hearts. And we're told that every day the Lord adds to those who are being saved. Now, I'm going to go ahead and pause there just to see how you feel about this picture of the early church. Uh, some people think that it's really inspiring and it is a standard that we should be shooting for even today. And other people um, uh, will, will say it's a little, you know, rosy and that things probably didn't happen exactly this way. And uh, might think it's a little impossible. So as for what you think, I'll, I'll leave that to you um, and pause there. First, um, when I was in college, there was a community known as The Well. And this, this, era, this section in Acts was something that they, they kind of based their fellowship on. They had different groups who, um, you know, with elders in charge of them. And that was kind of the idea that they would share things in common and the group would, you know, grow together. And, and it, it started out, of course, very utopian. It sounded really great. And then I went to medical school. So I kind of left this fellowship. And when I came back, um, you know, six or seven years later after medical school and residency, that fellowship had fallen apart. Mm -hmm. And I think that is one thing that sometimes these utopian groups, you know, they start off with a really great idea of, hey, we're going to be like the early Christians. But then, you know, that individuality still kind of gets the best of us. Um, and, and we realize that it, it may not be doable over a long, a long, the long term. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really, really good point. I think it's important, though, you know, people often go to this passage and say, that's what the early Christian church was like. And I don't think that's the main evidence we have in Scripture for what the early church was like. I think the main evidence we have for what the early church was like uh, was Paul's epistles, um, which started kind of in the late 40s and then went throughout the 50s, 60s. And at least then, the communities that he pastored, uh, you have examples of immorality, you have people getting drunk at the Eucharist, you have fighting, quarreling, basically all the good stuff we have in the church today. You know, I think Paul had a much more realistic view of uh, what the church was like. Now, that said, I don't doubt the historicity of this event in terms of what the earliest Christian movement looked like. But what we're going to find next week is that very early on, uh, it's just not going to work, that you're going to have these characters, Annas and Sapphira, who, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let you figure out what happens to them next week, but that this uh, moment where everyone is sharing their goods and selling their possessions and kind of having this little commune, um, that it's probably not going to last very long. I think the question for us today 
because uh, I think most of us, now I do want you to push back on me if this is something that you literally think you could do right now. And I'd love to hear what that would look like. But because most of us, you know, we have retirement accounts and we own our home and, or at least we aspire to and want to put our kids through college and we have all the complications of modern day economic life. I think the question I ask as a priest and a preacher is, what is the spirit of this sort of community look like in our day and time? What does it mean to live this generously now? Not to be literalists and to say it must look exactly like it looked like in the year 29 AD with the first 120 Christians or whatever, but to say, what could this look like in our life now if we take the spirit of generosity and community care that we see manifested in this reading? Anyone want to take a stab at that or challenge me to say, no, this is exactly what can happen and we're going to make it happen. Well, I, as I was, as I was listening to this and as I read through it before, it occurred to me that the, the people meeting in their homes and looking after one another and caring for each other it's, it's kind of what we've been doing during this pandemic. Um, checking up on people and checking on our neighbors, but, but meeting privately instead of as a big group. And that may not have any meaning at all, but it, it kind of has occurred to me a couple of times. No, that's, that's really good. I mean, so for one, the way that we get income these days typically isn't to sell our possessions. And my guess is that in order to fulfill your pledge to St. Michael's, you're not going to sell your refrigerator. You're going to give a portion of your paycheck or, or whatever your source of income is. You're not going to sell your baseball card collection or sell your flat screen TV. Um, and even if you did, you wouldn't get any money for it on the, on the secondhand market. And so what does it mean to sell our possessions? It means to give generously of our wealth right? And we have different standards on what that means for all of us, but selling our possessions isn't about selling your CD collection. It's about giving generously of your wealth. And what does it mean to ensure that those proceeds are distributed so that people with needs have those needs met? Exactly what it says, you know, where are the needs? Where can we give? Can we meet every human need? Can we feed every person in Austin and Oregon and beyond? Probably not, but we can look where the need is and take our generosity and leverage that and harness it to those places in our community where people really, really need it. And from that experience, can we get together as Christians and remind ourselves that we're making these sacrifices with a glad and generous heart because of what we believe? Absolutely. It's what we did today in worship. It's what we're doing now on Zoom. We're getting together with a glad and generous heart. And so you know, we see this picture and our first reaction might be, well, that's impossible. That's a nostalgic picture of a church that only existed for a moment. But what I love about what you said, Donna, is actually, no, it is something worth striving for here and now and something that we're living into in small, ordinary ways. And I think that's a really empowering thing to see. I just wanted to say something about the First Presbyterian Church here in Bend, which is has been nice to see how different churches do things differently. Um, so when the pandemic started, one of the pastors 
who ministers to young younger parishioners um, started a um, a pandemic group mm. and it was online and basically um, pandemic partners it is what it was called and the the church supported this because you know she was working with a Facebook page and connecting people so that if somebody needed something they put that out there and somebody else who was on that page would respond to the need whether it was to go pick up a prescription at the at the pharmacy for somebody who was housebound or whether it was hey do you have you know extra diapers or whatever it was yeah. um and and apparently that has spread you know to a lot of other um cities or, or towns mm -hmm. and and so that was one of the ways that that they responded to people's needs is that there was a generosity hey maybe i don't have money but i can run to the store and do something or i can go shopping for an elderly person who can't do it and it was just a way of connecting people with needs to people who are willing to fulfill that need um so there there That's i think great. there are many ways we can do it nowadays yeah so going back to that verse they would sell their possessions change that to they would give generously of their time mm -hmm. they would sell their they would give generously of their time and then we'll just keep the end of the verse to all as any had need right that's the church in action and so how this beautiful picture of community care looks on the one hand it's going to change year by year setting by setting but on the other hand there's something timeless about it it's just about people being generous and looking after each other and doing so in the name of christ and when the church is at her best we're always doing that in small ways and sometimes in big ways One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at three o'clock in the afternoon. A man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, asked to John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. Three things I'll say about this, knowing our time is short. Number one, one of the things just being emphasized is the power of the spirit, the miracle itself, the inbreaking of God's kingdom as part of what the church is. Second, I want you to note, notice how it says in verse four, Peter looked intently at him as did John and said, look at us. I just want you to notice the symbolism of the apostles looking at this beggar and saying, you look at me too. And this speaks to a new level of relationship that is possible in this restored Israel and this church where we actually look at each other. You can imagine that 
this beggar was passed every single day and he was so filled with shame. He never looked at people and people never looked at him, but he's being invited into this new relationship where people look at him and he gets to look back where he's an equal, where eye contact is part of his reality. And then finally, I want you to notice the change. Luke writes about a physical healing, but we can also look at this as a symbolic healing as well um, and draw out the metaphor that part of what Luke is saying is that this man used to be a beggar. He used to be lame, but because of his involvement now in the church, he's leaping and praising God and joining them on the way. And so part of what Luke would have us consider is that this is the change that God works in our life over time as we allow the spirit to break in and as we become witnesses with Jesus that we are transformed from the metaphorical lame beggar who's just asking for a little love here, a little meaning there, trying to get by in this big scary world. But then someone comes and says, look at me. And we're invited to look at them too. There's eye contact, there's relationship, there's grace, there's dignity. And we as human beings are transformed from beggar to apostle. And so you have a little bit of greater meaning happening here with this encounter as well. That last, that last section that you, that you read, um, looking at each other, I think that is huge you know for people and i think mm -hmm. i think homeless the homeless feel that way when people stop and look at them it, it makes me think of mobile loaves and fishes and mm -hmm. how just that reaching out accepting people and looking at them um you know gave them a feeling of dignity and respect yeah that mm -hmm. somebody cared enough to stop and and look at them yeah and look at their needs and the meaning is endless, you know, so it can be as mm -hmm. obvious as I'm passing by a homeless person and I'm going to make eye contact whether I choose to give them money or not. Or it can also mean, you know, Martha posts something on Facebook that I don't like. And instead of, you know, firing back with my alternate viewpoint, as if the fullness of her identity was tied to whatever political or theological statement she made that I didn't like, I can send her a message and just say, hey, Martha, I think I see what's really important to you here, and I'd like to learn more about that, you know? Maybe I do that, maybe I don't, but I can actually look at Martha. I can look at people in small ways as opposed to having a fixed idea about who they are and seeing them through my fears and prejudices and misconceptions. I can actually pause and be curious about human beings and look at them and say, hey, look at me too. Mm -hmm. Isn't that what our world needs, people who are looking at each other? Looking yeah. and listening. Looking and listening, mm -hmm. yeah. I think it takes a lot of courage um, to do that, absolutely. Mm -hmm. It I does agree. take courage, yeah. So why don't we commit to doing it this week? Martha, what do you think about that? I see you. I see you. you don't like my Facebook example? By the well, way, I'm, I'm not, not on, on Facebook, so you're neither, safe there. Neither, neither, neither am I. So that's, that's why I just said it. I, I hear that people like to fight on Facebook. That's, that's the rumor going around. 
I think of us, uh, it's gotten very difficult to drive here in Central Oregon because there's been so many people move here, particularly because of the pandemic. I mean, Bend has just exploded. And so driving's gotten very fierce compared to what it used to be. But a friend of mine said, well, look, just, just try to imagine that every one of these people is trying to save someone in their family. They've got an emergency to deal with. Mm-hmm. You don't want why they're driving down the road like that. And that's helped me a lot to just kind of calm down and accept people for what they are and just say they're, they're just trying to live their life too. Yeah. And I think we have, that's, you know, to, to turn it into the more uh, personal and, and, and creating a relationship with someone on the road instead of thinking they're your enemy out there. That's great. That's great. I love that. Well, thank you all so much for your time today. And I think, you know, we can end on this story and ponder the depth of, of what it means. But as you, you know, we didn't get a lot of time to discuss this and discuss this encounter with the beggar, but uh, I, I do believe, I, I really advocate for a creative and imagination oriented way of engaging scripture and not just to read it with the intellect, with the heart. And so if you want some homework for the week, I want you to place yourself in the shoes of the beggar. You know, Martin Luther once said, we're all beggars. That's the deepest truth about the world. And so in what way are we begging for grace and mercy and love in this world? Where can we tap into that sense of need and powerlessness and wanting to hear a good word? And then from that place of being a beggar, perhaps we can pray that we would have the same experience and that we would be filled with, as it says in the final verse, wonder and amazement at, you know, the power of God breaking into our life. If nothing else, we can reflect on that and maybe pray about it this week.